Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Stephen Bittner, host of History X Silo and special topics editor at the journal Kritika, Explorations in Russian and Eurasian History. The editors at Kritika have created History X Silo so historians have a place to discuss their works, share their underlying assumptions, explore similarities and differences, and most important, step outside of their own expertise silos. So much of the work of the professional historian fosters narrow specialization. We become kings and queens of our own historical hills, and not much else. History X Silo seeks to remedy this. If you are interested in the mission of History X Silo, or if you think you have an idea for an X Silo conversation, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. You can find my contact info on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Today, we have a conversation that was recommended to me by a listener. I brought together two historians who approach the past through the lens of family structures and family relationships. In Dynasty Divided, a family history of Russian and Ukrainian nationalism, Fabian Bauman investigates the origins of competing Russian and Ukrainian nationalisms through the story of the Shulgin family, or in Ukrainian, the Shulhin family. Prominent journalists, scholars, and politicians in Kiev, the Shulgins force a reconsideration of the mechanisms that create national identities. Bauman argues that becoming Ukrainian or Russian in 19th century Kiev was a deliberate choice, not a process of discovering a latent pre-existing identity in politicizing that identity. Consequently, Bauman's dynasty divided emphasizes the importance of family life, which was a little corner of relative freedom in Tsarist Russia, as a crucible of nationalist socialization. Dynasty Divided is not only a timely intervention into the history of Ukrainian identity in light of the Russo-Ukrainian War, but a highly revisionist work that challenges much of the literature on nationalism in Eastern Europe and the Russian Empire. In Fear of the Family, Guest Workers and Family Migration in the Federal Republic of Germany, Lauren Stokes traces the controversy surrounding guest worker migration after 1955 from Turkey, Yugoslavia, Greece, and elsewhere. Guest workers helped fuel post-war Germany's economic miracle. In principle, they contributed their labor while leaving their families at home and without drawing on West Germany's generous welfare system. Yet Stokes is most interested in two corollaries to this story. First, she shows that guest workers were savvy at challenging the state's division between work and family. And second, she uses official policy discussions as a window onto understandings of race and onto the racialization of immigration politics in the Federal Republic in the late 1950s and beyond. Proponents of immigration restrictions often warn that a more racially diverse population could lead to a populist backlash in short, to a resurgence of fascism. Ironically, popular memories of Nazism were used to argue for the preservation of a racially homogenous state. So I'll now introduce our historians. Fabian Baumann is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Heidelberg. 
He completed his PhD at the University of Basel in 2020. In addition to Dynasty Divided, Bauman is the author of many articles in German, English, and Spanish on past and present Russia and Ukraine. Uh, he is also one of the more thoughtful commentators on the present crisis in Ukraine on both Twitter and Blue Sky. Lauren Stokes is Associate Professor of History at Northwestern University. In addition to Fear of the Family, she has curated an exhibit on the history of LGBTQ life at the University of Chicago, which showed in the Hannah Holborn Gray Special Collections Research Center, uh, which ironically is where your podcast host once worked many years ago. Stokes has several projects underway at present, a history of racial profiling in Europe, a history of airports since the 1970s, and a history of bisexuality as a category of human sexuality. So I'm very pleased to welcome both Bauman and Stokes to the podcast. I look forward to our conversation. Uh, Lauren, we agreed beforehand that you would speak first. That's right. Um, and thank you so much for this invitation. I really uh, enjoyed reading Dynasty Divided. Uh, I was so struck by the fact that you look at this family and you explain so well in the book that previous scholars have looked at members of these, this family because they're all incredibly prolific. It seems like they just write and write and write, but they've tended to split the family up. Um, so the kind of Russian nationalists have ended up in Russian national historiography and the Ukrainian nationalists have ended up in Ukrainian national historiography. But by putting them in the same book, we see oh my gosh, in 1918, half of this family is running a secret intelligence service for Russian nationalists, and the other half of the family is arguing the Ukrainian national cause at the Paris Peace Conference. Uh, and it's just such a striking uh, new way to think about nationalizing and nationalism and how it works out in the family sphere. So I'm curious about how you came to frame it as a family history of these nationalisms. Uh, did you kind of start with this family and then find the nationalist frame? Or were you looking for a way into nationalism and alighted on a complicated family? Well, thank you so much. Um, and thank you, Stephen, for organizing this conversation. Uh, I also obviously uh, immensely enjoyed reading your book, Lauren, um, and we will talk about it soon. Um, so... To come to my choice of topic, I need to go back 10 years. Um, this was at a time when I was writing my master's thesis at the University of Oxford, uh, which was about debates on Russian and Ukrainian politics, identity, nationalism in the early 20th century. Um, I, I read through a lot of uh, parliamentary debates in the Imperial Duma, the, the parliament of, of late Imperial Russia. I read various journal and newspaper articles. And I found myself increasingly frustrated with uh, debates that seemed incredibly fruitless. Um, by the early 20th century, really actors on both sides uh, seemed to have made, made up their minds, seemed to be completely talking past one another. Um, and this left me wondering... Uh, how they had chosen these sites, what what had been the the origin uh, of these people's either Ukrainian or Russian self-images. Um, 
and then two more things happened. Um, on the one hand, I talked to Andreas Kappeler, uh, an eminent Swiss, also German and Austrian historian of Ukraine, who recommended to me to choose a biographical lens to work on, on the history of Ukrainian nationhood. He had himself written uh, a book about a uh, half-Russian, half-Ukrainian couple in the 19th century, And so this was his recommendation. And the other thing that happened was that I read uh, Faith Hillis's book, uh, Children of Ruth, which was uh, extremely fresh back then. And in this book, she mentioned uh, the fascinating Zaini uh, Shulgin family, and especially two of its members, Vasily Shulgin and Vitaly Shulgin, who were both on the Russian side of the divide. But in a few sentences, she also mentioned that there was a Ukrainian nephew. And this intrigued me. Uh, and that's what got me hooked on this family, uh, what started my investigation into their past. Uh, and, and then the next thing, of course, that I discovered is, just as you said, they were all extremely prolific. Uh, several of them were what the Russians call grafomani, grafomaniacs, who just wrote and wrote and wrote. I must have read thousands of pages by Vasily Shulgin alone. Um, and what was especially fortunate, I guess, was that with time, I also started uh, discovering documents left by the women in the family who had so far been very marginal in the historiography. And so, so this is how I came to, to investigate the split within one family and how I ultimately ended up uh, reconceptualizing nationhood in this particular period and setting as a conscious political choice, which is something that maybe we'll talk about later. And so to, to come to your book, um, when, when one reads this book about how the category of family informed migration policy in Germany, it seems like the most natural choice uh, to write about family you make it so obvious that family was at the center of the authorities' thinking and also at the center of migrants' responses to, to German, uh, to West German, uh, one should say, migration policy. But obviously, this is looking at a, at a polished end product. And, and I, I presume that when you began your project, it wasn't quite so clear yet that you that it would work out to put out put out put family at the center of your entire argument so maybe you could uh trace for us uh how in your case this worked out how you came to understand that family was really the crucial category of migration policy in west germany sure uh Yes, I, I definitely didn't have any scandal-ridden graphomaniacs uh who got me into the topic sadly uh but um they're a lot of fun to read about the scandal written Grappomaniacs. Uh, so I got into the topic, I would say, I was, I knew I wanted to do something on the history of guest worker migration to Germany. And I felt like there was this very um, simplistic narrative, both in the historiography and in public discussion about how guest workers came and when they were workers, everything was fine. And then when they started to bring over their families and family reunification started to accelerate in the 1970s, that's when the problems came. Uh, and I think this is, this is like most um, obviously 
This is most the, the famous Max Frisch quote. Uh, we asked for workers and people came is kind of the most the smallest expression of that, but uh, it's uh, it, it had reproduced itself in all kinds of other ways. And so I felt like that narrative. I wanted to look into it and see whether it was really true. I felt like the narrative kind of took the family to be a black box uh, and a black box where we already knew what it was. So, for instance we assume that the family reunification meant women and children following men. Uh, And then as soon as I actually started to look into the bureaucratic files, I realized that a lot of the assumptions we had had about how family migration worked weren't really true. uh, And that um, led to the book. So yes, I would say at the beginning of my research process, people were quite skeptical it would work out. They were like, we already all know this. Like there's, there, there were men and then there were women and families create problems because of course they do. Uh, but I think by really looking at the archives and really peeling back the assumptions that went into that, you see that our assumptions about, um, our assumptions about what family migration meant were actually the end of a process rather than uh, historical givens. Uh, so that's that's how I kind of came to it. Just to give one quick example, um, I was very inspired by a lot of critical migration scholarship that looked at the heteronormativity of family migration, right? So when I started this project, uh, I don't think mar- uh, same-sex marriage was possible in Germany yet all the time back when I started this project. So I was like, I'm angry that guest workers could migrate, but they couldn't bring same-sex partners with them. I'm still angry about that 15 years later, but I also found out that even such supposedly natural relationships as parent-child and wife-husband were also under intense pressure by the family migration apparatus. Uh, so that's that's kind of how I, I came to it. I, uh, I, uh, we have a very like different set of sources. I would say my sources are mostly um, bureaucratic, political parties, uh, welfare agencies, they're often sources that are about family members and kind of experts and politicians looking at these people. Uh, whereas you really have this, this amazing wealth of sources from both the men and the women in the family. I wanted to ask, uh, when you have somebody who's written thousands of pages about his own life uh, and you have to distill this into a book that's somewhat less than a thousand pages, what was your what was the biggest challenge in terms of translating these graphomaniacs into a readable narrative for us? I'm very grateful that I enjoyed reading the book, but I was grateful that I didn't have to read eight thousand pages to get the man's story. Um, yeah, no, you're of course absolutely right that uh, there's a lot that I did not cover to give just one example in. Vasily Shulgin, who had a, a, a crazy life by all standards, uh, among other things, as an old man already, spent 12 years uh, imprisoned in the Soviet Union. Um, and during that period, uh, he, he was just writing diaries, mem- memoirs, but completely unordered memoirs. And these booklets, for instance, at one point, uh, contained 200 pages about his childhood dog called Mars. Um, now, now these are things that I, I scanned through and and did not put into the book. But in in a way, in his case particularly, um, the wealth of of memoir writing was also enriching because you could really see how 
he made sense of his own life in various stages, how uh, his narration about what he experienced gradually stabilized, um, how he even had the same associations between topics when he was writing about them, first in the 1920s and then again in the 1960s. He made the same sort of jumps from one thought to another. Um my goal, of course, in putting this into the book was to cover private life uh, and biographical experience experiences to the extent that they were relevant to people's political socialization. Um, and, of course, there was always the temptation to put in more of the personal scandal of all the... Um, non-marital romances of the illegitimate children. Um, I, I did keep it relatively short in the end to, to argue that sort of these scandals that the Russian side of the family had. I actually, interestingly, the oppositional Ukrainian Shulhins seem to have been model citizens with regard to private morality. And it was the pro-government Russian Shulgins who flouted all the conventions. But but I only put it in to argue that it was precisely this uh, scandalous private life that allowed them to turn their family into this highly functional political machine, uh, to sort of instrumentalize their family network, to bring the specific... Kiev uh, form of Russian nationalism onto the imperial stage. Um, on the other hand, despite having so many sources on some issues, I also was struck by the absence of sources on on some topics that seemed central to me. For instance, the very fact of the split in the family, which happened in the 1870s when um, then a then young man called Yakov uh, Shulgin or Yakov Shulhin in Ukrainian, um, decided to follow the lead of uh, progressive academics at, at Kiev University to start identifying himself with Ukraine's peasant population rather than with the Russified uh, urban intelligentsia and subsequently turned his, his family into a, into a stronghold of Ukrainian culture and, and Ukrainian nationhood. This episode, which included a spectacular break with his beloved uncle, is hardly covered in the sources at all. So perhaps there was a sense of embarrassment around the split in the family. Um, perhaps it was just that people did not think of it as worth recording in detail. Um, but it's it's really this, this asymmetry of the sources where, where some issues, and especially the public-facing side of the family, is, is covered in enormous details with loads of newspaper articles covering uh, covering their opinions on the minutes of Russian-Ukrainian relations, and then these uh, biographical junctures that are all, almost uncovered in the source base. I, I think that was really the challenge in, in dealing with this source base. That's really interesting. I, I also noticed that I don't want to give too many details about the scandals because people should read the book, uh, but they're very scandalous. Uh, but I really enjoyed your argument that um, this scandalous private life may actually have forged them more tightly to the nationalist cause, because even when the members of the family were hurting each other really deeply uh, in their intimate lives, uh, they could both say, oh, well, we're being very mean to each other at home, but we're both very committed to Russian nationalism. And I was struck by that. 
uh, that complexity. And I wonder, I wonder if the break to another, another possibility for why he doesn't write that much about this break with his uncle would be that it was traumatic and difficult, right? That this was something he struggled to put into his self-conception, this idea that the families could go such different ways under this, this pressure of nationalizing politics in the late 19th century. Uh, but I really, I really enjoyed how you did that. And then I also really enjoyed how you incorporated the women, uh, because from my understanding, uh, people haven't paid that much attention to the women in this family before your book. And I wonder uh, for you, how did, how did the women's politicization and the women's work on behalf of these two different nationalist causes, how does it reframe how we think about nationalism? I mean, as, as a maybe a first remark, I, I think it's not just the women in this family that are hardly covered in historiography. It's generally uh, astonishing how little historiography there is about nationalist women, not about gender ideas among nationalists, but among women as uh, agents and actors of nationalism. Uh, there is a very good book by Heidrun Zettelbauer on German nationalist women in Prague. Um, there is uh, a book, there, there are a couple of good articles by Jitka Maleczkova about um, Czech nationalist women. Um, but And there is work on the interwar period, but very little on the 19th century. And my hypothesis for why this is, is that these are not very attractive uh, historical actors for most historians. Feminist historians tend to uh, prefer progressive women, and these were usually not progressive women. Most of them tended to share the um, the nationalist politics of their male peers almost completely, including uh, the relatively conservative uh, gender roles that came with nationalism. Um, and they're not very attractive for many historians, at least past historians of nationalism who have tended to share some nationalist premises and who are not particularly interested in, in women's history. But um, I think they are very interesting historical actors because despite not being feminists in an ideological sense, they did breach traditional gender roles in, in their actions. Um and this is also how they can contribute to a new uh, historiography of nationalism, because what they did was often not in the public sphere. In the case of the Russian Empire, the um, public politics was close to women to the extent that a public politics even existed. It was either um, bureaucratic on the, on the ministerial level or on the level uh, in the early 20th century of parliamentary debates that were obviously also close to women. Um, and therefore, women became active in the private sphere. However, uh, nationalists are usually obsessed with the creation of uh, a national community that is stable in time. And, and that means that uh, they, they put an extreme emphasis on the, on the education of, of future generations. Um, moreover, they usually conceive of nationalism as an ideology that should... Um, that should be active not just in in politics 
uh, in the narrow sense, but that really should um, permeate the entire society, including private spaces. And, and, and this, in turn, allows nationalist women to develop political agency within the families in their uh, idealized role as the educators of the future generations, but also as organizers of, of political salons, for instance, um, where they sort of combine the display of uh, uh, the display of idealized domesticity with display of national culture, um, where they try to influence. In the case of Ukrainian nationalists, for, for instance, young students, um, where they try to pull people into this closely knit circle of Ukrainophiles in, in late Imperial Kiev. And here, of course, it is um, important to remember that Ukrainian nationalism was heavily repressed by uh, the Russian Empire, uh, especially following the 1876 Ems Ukaz, uh, when it was almost when it became almost impossible to propagate a Ukrainian nationhood in the press uh, or in public culture. Now, the Ukrainian uh, nationalist men were almost all educated in the humanities or social sciences, which meant that they were dependent on state employment, either as professors or as teachers or as bureaucrats. And um, women did not meet the same constraints. They could not work for the state anyways. So that left them uh, much more liberty to live their activism in these private households. And I think, uh, especially in the case of, of national movements uh, that, that operated in a clandestine way, as Ukrainian nationalism did in late 19th century Russian Empire, um, focusing on women I think uncovers hidden histories that were barely written about in, in the past, at least in, in Western historiography. Now, I mean, your setting is obviously completely different in, in every way imaginable, but um, still, I think one commonality that I found find be between our books is how women within patriarchal societies, patriarchal uh, movements as well, are usually... Uh, imagined as subjects within a family framework. So, so it's either their role in uh, the nursing and education of future generations. Sometimes it's also this idea that you point out at several points in your book that women are able to tame their husbands, uh, make them more suitable for, for majority society. Um, but then at the same time, uh, Women, both both nationalist women in the 19th century and immigrant women in 20th century Germany, can sometimes also instrumentalize these images by by politicizing their role within the family. Whether it is uh, through appeals to to sentiment and protection from the state, or whether it is mm, by by sort of uh, emphasizing their roles as as mothers or wives. Um, so. Yeah, so, so could you perhaps just tell us a little bit about how you uncovered these things in your book and also how the integration of, of women into uh, a modern capitalist economy as, as wage laborers sort of changed their potential for political agency? Yeah, uh, great question. I think uh, it is so interesting how women... Um, <laughs> women are instrumentalized in so many different roles in my story. Uh, and they're, they're kind of 
I like the way you put it that they're using they're instrumentalizing their own images to do work for them. So I'm I'm looking at family migration of guest workers into West Germany. And one of my first findings, and this is the subject of the first few chapters of the book, is that the West German state loved having women around, right? This was not a case where the West German state brought in guest workers and then a few, a decade later, begrudgingly accepted family migration. This was a case where the West German state loved having two members of a guest worker couple both in Germany to work uh, to the extent that there's a point in the book where Greece and Turkey are both saying, hey, we want to spread the benefits of emigration around. Can you stop recruiting multiple members of the same family to be guest workers? And West German officials push back and they say, no, uh, it's so useful for us to have two members of a married couple coming to Germany to work. Uh, we don't care what you think, Greece and Turkey, we're going to keep doing this recruitment. So seeing to what extent West German employers and West German state saw the family as a resource really turned on its head this idea that the family was somehow bad or a problem, because it sure was not a problem in the in the high period of guest worker recruitment. And so there's a bunch of reasons they like having uh, married couples recruited together. Uh, one of those is, as you mentioned, uh, there's an anxiety about contact between foreign men and German women. And so there's an idea that if foreign men and foreign women come together, then the foreign men can have sexual contact just with the foreign women and not with the German women. So there's a there's a way in which uh, family migration is a supposed to be a hedge against um, uh, in, international uh, sexual contact and binational marriages. They're quite explicit about that in the sources. Uh, they also think that if you have a married couple, uh, they're more likely to be stable at work. Uh, they're less likely to change jobs quickly or to be unruly. Uh, as workers. They're easier to discipline as workers. And finally, women in particular are very valuable because you can pay them less than men. Uh, they're seen as secondary wage earners. And uh, a lot of West German industries are really eager to recruit foreign women because you don't have to pay them as much. Uh, and they're seen as more suitable for specific kinds of work, um, textile productions, microelectronic production, um, food processing things like that. And so we get to this point where women from places like Turkey and Greece are actually more in demand in West Germany than men from these places. And so a lot of women became the first people in their families to move from their home country to West Germany. And they actually were the pioneer migrants. That's not what I, I had not expected to find that going in at all. I had assumed uh, with the kind of assumptions of migration history that men come first and women follow, right? Men are always the leaders in the family. Men are the ones making the decisions for where they go. But instead, I found that women were often going first because they were so in demand by West German employers. And then they use that position of the pioneer migrant, sometimes to their benefit, um, but sometimes it's something that can be kind of exploited against them, right? Uh, there's a there's a period I discuss in the book where the West German government is kind of trying to enforce the idea that there can only be one breadwinner in a foreign family. Uh, and ideally, the first person to get the work visa becomes the person who's the single breadwinner. 
well, women make less than men. There's a gender wage gap, right? Bigger back then than it is now, and it still exists now. So if you're legally forcing the woman to be the single breadwinner, you're forcing these families into really difficult economic choices to have to make. So yeah, this this idea that women are not really supposed to be in wage work, but they're very much demanded in wage work becomes a way to like exploit them and get more labor out of them. But then it also does become something that uh, some of these women and these families can use to argue on behalf of their own cause and to kind of um, make certain kind of arguments about what they deserve from the state. Uh, So yeah, for me, looking at women and realizing that they were political actors really opened up whole new ways of thinking about the making of migration policy. Uh, and again, because in my case, there's this uh, encounter between West German society and these different countries around the Mediterranean, Italy, Spain, Greece, Yugoslavia, Turkey, Portugal. Uh, there's a lot of assumptions about what women are in each society. So you see constantly German officials assuming that women from Turkey behave a certain kind of way. uh, And those assumptions are used to make policy. uh, And they sometimes do fit how people from these countries behave, but they often don't. And when they don't, it really becomes a kind of crisis for the migration regime. Uh, So, you know, the migration bureaucrats at some point realize what I realize, which is, oh my gosh, women are migrating before their husbands. And they write exclamation points in the margins and they say, this shouldn't be happening. Um, They really, it challenges their concepts of how the family should work in a way that uh, upsets the kind of social order they wanted to bring about. Uh, And it's, it's very interesting to think about how in both of our cases, I think two women are women are the ones who raise children, right? That's like one of the assumptions that's that's shared across a lot of different settings. And there's a lot of anxiety about whether women are good at transmitting the correct values to children. So I was really struck by the fact that uh, one of the big driving concerns of my book is these these the children of the guest workers, what identity are they going to have when they grow up? Are they going to have a Turkish or Greek identity? Are they going to be able to take on a West German identity? Or are they going to try and take on both identities and fail at both, uh, which becomes the kind of pessimistic diagnosis a lot of policymakers have that these children will grow up to be uh, illiterate in two languages is their their phrase. Uh, So I was very used to thinking like, oh yeah, in my in my case, there's all kinds of anxiety about whether nationalist transmission of values and languages will work. But it kind of made sense because at least there's a migration context. I was struck by how anxious some of your protagonists were about whether they were correctly transmitting Ukrainian nationalism or Russian nationalism to their children. There's one moment, I forget which, which of the men it is, but he's writing, oh, uh, this man is editing a nationalist newspaper and his entire family life is built around nationalism and he's still complaining that his children aren't nationalist enough. Uh, And so I was really, I was really struck by the fact that even in this hyper-nationalized space, there was this deep anxiety about whether the nationalist project could transmit through generations. And I wanted to ask you to say more about that uh, 
I, I mean, of course, the, the larger argument of the book is it doesn't always transmit through generations. Some of these people did make different choices that put them in Ukrainian and Russian camps by the end of the story. Uh, but yeah, what did you learn about the transmission of national values over generations as you were doing this research? Well, thanks for this question. Uh, th this was also one of the common threads that I uh, discovered uh, between our two books, this, this, this anxiety about transmitting values or transmitting culture. Um, and, and you show brilliantly how uh, German migration policy at a certain point was always predicated on this assumption that sort of the first generation of migrants is culturally irredeemable, uh, but that perhaps um, the the second generation uh, may become German in some way through through school uh, and especially through the labor market or through vocational training, and and so basically the the German state feared precisely what Ukrainian nationalists in the 19th century were hoping for, namely mm, the reproduction of a cultural outlook that was different from majority society in, in the cities where they lived. Um, because, of course, uh, again, we, we need to remember that Kiev in, in the 19th and early 20th century was very much part of the imperial Russian public sphere, especially when we look at the educated classes. Um, children children needed to go to to Russian state uh, schools, the the famous gymnasia where teachers wore uniforms uh, and the language, uh, the only language even of, of conversation during free time was, was Russian and the values inculcated were very much the, those of the Russian empire. And so... Ukrainian nationalists who were very constrained in what they were allowed to do, of course, worried constantly about how they they could pass on their ideas about Ukrainian nationhood, about Ukrainian culture to their children. And let's remember here that many of these nationalists of the generation born around 1850, 1860, were still themselves relatively insecure in their Ukrainianness. especially the men often did not know the Ukrainian language very well. They tended to uh, marry women who knew it better, who sometimes had a rural background and were therefore more fluent speakers of Ukrainian. Um, but still, the men, as I said, needed to, needed to be um, good subjects of the Russian Tsar while at work and could only live out their dreams of Ukrainian nationhood at home. And so... So they did have this hope that an, uh, an education in national culture would create a, a solidly national youth who would no longer question their belonging. Um, and, and for this, they usually employed homeschooling. It was, again, mostly the women who taught the children at home, who taught them in Ukrainian, uh, who enriched the official curriculum with Ukrainian national elements, uh, whether it was... Uh, you know, the, the history of Ukrainian Cossackdom, for instance, or um, literature in Ukrainian, such as uh, the, the fables written by Hlibov, or uh, uh, above all, the poetry of Ukraine's national poet, Taras Shevchenko. Um, and still, as you mentioned, there were all these anxieties that this endeavor might fail. Um, not, not only did they fear uh, that... Uh, sort of the temptation of Russian uh, imperial majority culture might be uh, too great that children 
or uh, youths might decide to become just members of this Russian public sphere with its shiny theaters and its much larger literature at the time, obviously, again, due to political constraints. There was even the opposite fear that national Ukrainian culture might become too self-evident for for these children uh, and might seem politically irrelevant and something no longer worth fighting for. And it is in this context that the man you mentioned, a newspaper publisher called Yevhen Chikalenko, who was also the the Messinas of the the Ukrainian national movement at the time, uh, writes this letter where he complains about the not only his own children, but also those of of uh, other uh, nationalist activists are not sufficiently national, are attracted by Russian culture, or may sort of live Ukrainian culture, but no longer see it as the center of their identity. And he even writes this perhaps ironic sentence that procreation should be imposed on the plebs because sort of all great, uh, great Ukrainian national activists have uh, come from the peasantry rather than from the intelligentsia, which, by the way, is not true. And also, many of the of the nationalist children he he blames in this letter for not being nationalist enough uh, did actually go on to make careers in the national movement, um, including his own. But it is this very obvious tendency here that activism for the perfection of one's nationhood is often geared at the following generation. Um, and, and this is, again, this very same feeling that activists think they that they themselves are too Russified to become fully Ukrainian during their lifetimes, but their children might yet become complete Ukrainians. And this, to an extent, works out, especially when the younger generation is forced into exile after the October Revolution and... In Central and Western Europe, in Paris, in Prague, um, these these people then manage to create a Ukrainian public sphere that is no longer linked to uh, the Russian emigre public sphere in the same way that they were linked back home. And it is here, by the way, that I see a clear parallel with contemporary Ukraine, um, where the Russian language and, and Russian culture are understandably getting less popular uh, due to the way that the Putin regime instrumentalizes them in its war against Ukraine. And many Russian-speaking Ukrainians sort of feel emotionally distanced from the language they grew up with, Russian. Um, and, but at the same time, many of them think that they will no longer fully transition to Ukrainian during their lifetimes, but their children may yet do so. And so many of these people have decided to send their children uh, to to monolingually Ukrainian schools, even if they're abroad, uh, they want they want the new generation to to become uh, not only fluent in Ukrainian but monolingually fluent in Ukrainian, or perhaps actually have English or German as their second language rather than Russian. So so this is a, a clear parallel in in how people sort of imagine the becoming of a nation. Um, and it is also, by the way, a, a good example for the entanglement of civic and ethnic forms of nationhood, because these people, for political, that is, civic reasons, um, decide uh, to to change their family's culture in a way that will ultra, uh, ultimately result in a more ethnically homogeneous community. Yeah, so, so yeah, sorry. 
Just uh, one thing you this made me think of was when I was, it, you said it was Kalenko who wrote that letter. And it just reminded me of this. I think we're also both working with like a national indifference paradigm a little bit, like this assumption that um, uh, many people much of the time aren't thinking a lot about their nation uh, and it's just becoming salient at specific moments. And in that letter, I just thought, oh, wow, like he has the passion of a convert to new Ukrainian nationalism, right? He has this, I've come to choose this. I'm trying to make this a self-actualized project of my Ukrainian nationalism. And he's worried that people who don't have the passion of the convert, like his own children, may not have the same conviction it's needed to keep Ukrainian nationalism alive in a context where, as you point out, it's suppressed uh, in public expression. Uh, so it's just, it's striking to see people who care deeply about nation and that has become their overriding purpose uh interacting with people who are like eh, can kind of take it or leave it and it's just not the salient question for them and i felt like both of our books even though it's in completely different contexts do speak to this question of what happens when people who care deeply about nation uh meet people who are a bit indifferent to nation it's it's uh, sort of an ironical dynamic of of I guess all identity categories that was pointed out among others by uh, Michael Billig in his book on on banal nationalism uh, is that sort of when people need to struggle for these categories uh, they're salient and they're often talked about but the most successful nationalisms are the ones that are not talked about because they're they have resulted in in the creation of uh, homogeneous nation states where people no longer no longer question their national identity. I, I would like to to go back perhaps to the topic of gender once more. Um, we've both talked about how sort of women appear as political actors uh, when one brings the family into into conversations about political history. Uh, especially in the case of society where women's political participation is not so obvious at first glance. Um, but when I started working on my project, one of the uh, early things that someone pointed out to me was my colleague uh, Alexa von Winning, who has written on a, on a Russian noble family, um, is that family history also allows us to see male uh, political actors in a new light to point out that they too are not just these disembodied uh, uh, walking political ideals fighting for change, but they too actually come out of a, a family setting where they where they their private life has has an impact. Um, and your chapter ha you, you have one chapter in your book with the with the beautiful title Our Man Family Members. Um, and perhaps you could uh, elaborate a little on how uh, family policy affected men, uh, immigrant men to, to West Germany. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for that question. That is uh, one of my favorite chapter titles in my book, Our Men Family Members. Uh, and it points to so obviously the answer is yes, right? Um, men also have families. Any If somebody is a wife, there must be a husband around in the specific context I'm writing about. And that husband is defined by his husbandness. He's defined by his familyness. Uh, but the reason that it's a sensible book chapter title is because the way that the category of family is used in the bureaucracy is, at a, is as a category of dependency, right? So the idea is 
family members have the right to migrate and to reunify in West Germany because they are dependents of some breadwinner migrant who is imagined to be male. Uh, And so what happens is all of these women who have migrated ahead of their husbands are now trying to bring in their husbands as the trailing spouse, the second member of the family to migrate. And the bureaucracy is really confused by this because the bureaucracy says family migration is for women, right? Women are dependents. Men aren't dependents. Um, How dare you try and bring in men non-dependent, like who are in our imagination, non-dependents under a category that is only meant for dependency. Uh, So what you see is that uh, every time a man tries to migrate through this family category, his motives come under question, right? Is he really trying to rejoin his wife or is he using um, the fact that he's married to this woman who lives in Germany in some kind of way that's instrumental and that might be scary to us. Um, uh, that's that's how the bureaucracy thinks about it. So uh, there's a huge debate in the bureaucracy about whether men should be allowed to take, to take um, advantage of the regime of family reunification that's set up. Women are kind of assumed to always be dependents. They're assumed to need the protection of a husband, of a brother, of a father. And so their migration is always a little bit less problematic, whereas male migration is seen as a possible threat. Men are seen as you know threats to West German men on the labor market, uh, potentially sexual threats, potentially um, much later in the project security threats, I would say. Uh, one more thing I wanted to say about male migration is that we also see this in terms of binational marriages. So there's a huge debate about when West Germans marry non-West Germans, uh, are they allowed to bring in their foreign spouse with them? And so I, I, this became very clear to me in the archives of North Rhine-Westphalia, where I think I was reading some file that was titled Binational Marriages. And in the file, there's one sheet that says, if a West German man wants to bring in a non-West German woman, that's always fine. Always approve it. One sheet. Uh, and then there are 600 pages of if a West German woman wants to bring in a non-West German man, should she be allowed to? So you see there that the assumption is that like the male nationality is men should have the prerogative to marry whoever they want and to bring whoever they want into the German nation. Whereas when women choose to marry outside of the German nation, their belonging to that nation actually becomes more under question and contingent. So you see all of these debates about if a West German woman marries a man from Turkey, shouldn't she have to move to Turkey rather than having him move to West Germany? So that was really interesting to me just in seeing that the West German bureaucracy assumed that the male national identity should be the one to kind of determine the family's location, uh, even though in other ways of thinking about the nation, it's the woman who is the the guarantor of tradition and the guarantor of uh, passing down these values to the next generation. Uh, so you see there a real tension between two different ways of thinking about men's and women's roles in performing national identity. Well, are we wrapping up? Um, I would have one more question that I would like to ask okay. Lauren. Um, so, so I, I, I thought one of the most impressive features of your book was how you 
sort of in in several places you show how politicians assumptions about immigrant families uh their assumptions about sort of a conservative patriarchal mediterranean or uh muslim family uh turn out to be self-fulfilling prophecies so for instance in in Uh, one chapter you write about how there was uh, they instituted a waiting period for for married couples uh, for the for the sort of second arriving family member uh, to to come to Germany and to take up work and how this sort of both forced men uh, who wanted to immigrate to to uh, Germany after their wives uh, it forced them to remain idle for a time and at the same time it forced women to marry early. So it really created these non-working idle men uh, that the German authorities feared and at the same time the dependent women. Um, I, I, I thought that was ex extremely interesting how they sort of created the stereotypes they they thought about. Um, and and all of this is always predicated on this idea that the Turkish family, mostly the Turkish, but earlier on you also give examples on, on Spanish or Greek families, that they sort of embody values that are incompatible with German society. And I was wondering if you found any evidence for how immigrants interpreted uh, this this vision of the of the Mediterranean or immigrant family, whether they shared any of these conceptions. Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say that... Um... It's one that I hope other scholars will take up because it's not something I fully had space for in my book. But you do see immigrants themselves debating what they should do in relationship to these state policies. One of the most, um, one of the easiest ways for me to get at this was thinking about the parents' associations. So there's like a Spanish parents' association, there's an Italian parents' association, there's a Turkish parents' association, all of whom are trying to think about how do we educate our children in this in this. Uh, situation of living outside of our country. And uh, you see their different like counter discourses to how the state sees it. Um, so you see parents who are like, explicitly trying to raise children who will be able to speak both languages and to move between places quite comfortably. Uh, that's very explicit in how the Italian parents talk about themselves, for instance, they really want Uh, their children to speak Italian and speak German and have this flexibility to move back and forth between these spaces. Uh, and some of the Turkish parents want that as well. It's just that what happens over time is that European integration means Italian kids can move in ba back and forth pretty easily, whereas Turkish kids are kind of on the other side of this gap uh, that they have to bridge with visas, that they have to bridge with a restrictive migration policy. So what you see is that over time, families that have kind of started to embrace cosmopolitan and binational approaches, some of those families are able to do so because of the structure of European integration, right? The Spanish families are going to become part of the European economic community. They're going to have the right to go back and forth freely, whereas the Turkish families become ever more excluded and kind of on the outside of this European integration project. Uh, even though there were kind of counter narratives to that. Uh, and this actually reminds me of the, the one more question I wanted to ask you, which was, um, I like what you said about, uh, I do think of my book as a lot about self-fulfilling prophecies, right? The kind of, the state like kind of creates the situations it is fearful of in this odd way. And I, you're very good at showing how choices for national identification become 
kind of path dependencies, right? Like it's because somebody broke with his uncle a generation ago that this kid is now a Ukrainian nationalist 40, 50 years later. Uh, And your story about them really emphasizes contingency, right? Like by the end of it, I think we have to see that national identification is contingent, is complicated, is multi-causal. But the way they write about it is fate, right? Your actors write in their 8,000-page memoirs that they became Russian nationalists because they looked inside themselves and they found out they were Russians, or they looked inside themselves and they found out they were Ukrainians. So I'm curious about how you think about the challenge of writing when you're trying to restore contingency to the idea of national identification, but your actors really want it to be a matter of fate and a matter of how they were born. Yeah, thank you. That That's a very good question. Now, I mean, perhaps I should start by saying a few words about the idea of, of nationality as choice, the way I conceptualize it, because obviously I don't believe that people can just randomly choose a nationality for themselves. It's not like the Shulgins uh, and Shulhims could just as well have been Swedish or Japanese. Um, it's obviously... it's obviously that people work with um, the cultural materials surrounding them. Um, But of course, they can draw borders, uh, national borders differently. And this allowed people growing up in 19th century Ukraine um, to either see Ukraine as a sort of peasant uh, nation onto itself or as part of a larger, somewhat... Uh, diverse, larger Russian East Slavic nation. Um, And these choices, as I tried to show in the book, were really contingent on people's political worldview with sort of people uh, going in a peasant socialist direction, tending to to identify as Ukrainians and people who were statists, conservatives, uh, usually ending up in in the Russian national camp. And now, as you said correctly, my actors interpreted their lives and their family history differently. If you look at the quotations I, I put in the beginning of the book, uh, when they were in, in emigration in the interwar period, one of them wrote, um, wrote about the split in the family in the 19th century as an act of uh, apostasy by, by one person who sort of gave up his true Russian identity to, to follow the, the fake teachings of the Ukrainian nationalists. Whereas the, the other actors, uh, whereas the, the other actor sees it as an act of return to one's ethnic roots, uh, sort of leaving behind the fake uh, uh, imperial culture imposed from above. And of course, they. Of course, I don't agree. Of course, I, I I see these choices as contingent because if they weren't contingent, it wouldn't be possible to make both different choices for people in the same in the same family. But I think that in their very honest moments in their memoirs, these people actually acknowledge the openness of the situation in the 19th century. Um, For instance, when I talk about peasants, they often mention that they weren't quite determined in their loyalties, that they could switch back and forth between supporting Ukrainian socialists or Russian monarchists, um, or that they did have uh, clearly defined ideas of local belonging, um, 
that could include difference with uh, from difference from central Russia, but that were not necessarily seen in the in the in the framework of a larger nation. I mean, Ukrainian as for peasants in the 19th century worked very much within this sort of socio-ethnically categorized rural society uh, where where usually languages and um, religions, uh, sort of language and religious boundaries coincided with with economic and class boundaries. And within these boundaries, peasants could at times uh, identify as either Russians or Ukrainians. But even nationalists recognized that this was not uh, an unambiguous national self-identification. And obviously, I do work a lot with memoirs. They are probably the most central category of sources that I use. And they have left an imprint on my book. I mean, it is in these memoirs that the actors themselves, some of them at least, draw direct uh, connections between their private lives and uh, political development. It is there that Alexander Shulhin sketches um, this idea of the of the family as sort of um, a preserve for Ukrainian national culture and politics. It is in her memoirs that Yekaterina Shulgina points out how sort of uh, private crises in her life uh, brought her to politics, whether it's in, in 1905 or in, in 1917. So, I mean, these memoirs have left an imprint. I hope that I have also acknowledged where I follow uh, my protagonist's accounts. But it is true that sort of in the central category of of uh, interpretation uh, about what what brought people to one national uh, national side or the other, I, I disagree with them. Yeah, I mean, I think you do a great job of uh, Yekaterina Shulgin is one of my favorite figures. Her story is just so interesting, and I think you do a great job of showing how right their self narration itself is a response to the fluidity of the situation that they're in, uh, and. It's very interesting to see how to these local identifications matter a lot. A lot of the figures in my book, you know, kind of feel let down by both the German and the Turkish states by the end, but they're they're they might be represent they might um be able to identify as like people of Stuttgart or people of Berlin, right? And those local identifications kind of can become places people um do find security and comfort, even as the bigger state projects of nationalism abstract their lives in ways that aren't really helpful for them. So I think maybe both of our books do speak to some of the contingencies and oddities of the nationalizing project in the in the 19th and 20th centuries in that way. It's a, gr- a really good point about sort of local identification that, that you make. Um, and I've also noticed just in, in my private experience that many people with, with unclear national belonging tend to identify strongly with a a city or an area where they grew up. And so perhaps in some ways, uh, uh, the local local sort of framework of identification was there before nationalism. And for for some people, apparently, it's also there after nationalism. Well, on behalf of everyone at Critica, I want to thank Fabian Bauman and uh, Lauren Stokes for their conversation today. You can find links to the books they have discussed on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Uh, please keep an eye on the History X Silo page for our next uh, X Silo conversation. Uh, thank you to both of you.